more miracles will Jesus have to perform before they believe or change their lifestyles? One more? Two more? Five more? Ten more? How many? Jesus even heals a man who had been crippled for 38 years, and yet the man continued in his lifestyle of sin in John chapter 5. How many more miracles would Jesus have to perform before the people would believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and change your lifestyle? How many more? 5, 10, 15, 20? Consider John chapter 21. The last verse in the book of John says, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, then all the books in the world possibly wouldn't cover it. How many more do you need? Just as the Pharisees asked for a miraculous sign, the world today says, prove to us that you Christians are right. Just prove it. Church, you need to write this down. You need to realize this. Church, it's not in our job description to prove that we are right. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, prove that you're right as a believer. This is not covered in other duties as assigned. I've spent the past 10, 11, 12, oh, past 13 years teaching seminars on beating burnout. And if you want to burn yourselves out, go out there and try and prove to the world that you're right and try and make everybody happy. It won't happen. If you want a test run, next family reunion you have, it's all up to you. <laughs> Christ did not ask us to prove anything but to bear witness or to be a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Witness in this context means those who proclaim the facts of the gospel and tell of its good news. Proclaim and tell. Proclaim and tell. He didn't say anything about proving. Think about this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 states, Jews demand miraculous signs. Hmm. And sadly, the world today demands the proof that we are right. Second, second, the proof has already been presented to the world. Number two, or second, the proof has already been presented to the world. Reading verses 39 through 42, verse 39 of our text. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Period. None will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. Second, the proof has already been presented to the world. The proof has already been presented. Christ responds to the demand for a miraculous sign by stating, the only sign that will be given will be the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 39. The sign of the prophet Jonah was that of verse 41, the preaching of Jonah. What does it say, verse 41? And they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
documented book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites only observed Jonah preach, Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. And they never observed Jonah being swallowed by the fish, nor did they observe him being vomited onto dry land, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. For the Ninevites to have witnessed this, now you need to get a picture of this. Think about this. Jonah is in the Mediterranean body of water, the Med. Any, any former squids here? Jonah's in the Med, Mediterranean Sea. And the fish spits him onto dry land. Nineveh is in today, present day, Iraq, or 220 miles north of Baghdad. So you need to picture this in your head. The fish would have had to have spit him a minimum of 415 miles. That's a whole new definition of projectile vomiting. <laughs> they were not standing in Nineveh behind the walls and said, Incoming! This time it's a Jew! He didn't spit him that far. All they had was Jonah showing up and preaching. Now, some scholars have debated that Jonah, who was a Jew, with olive skin, showed up very, very pale from being in the belly of a whale, and the hydrochloric acid in the stomach bleached him white. But you know what? Scripture doesn't tell us that, does it? It says they repented at the preaching of Jonah. It didn't say they repented at a pale little white guy that showed up. Now think about that. All the Ninevites knew was what Jonah had preached or testified about. Scripture records no miracle there. In this context of Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 42, Jesus draws an analogy between Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish that nobody witnessed and himself spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is testifying about himself and Jonah's ministry in the context of preaching, verse 41. In fact, if you consider our Lord and Savior, after he was resurrected, only a little over 500 people saw him. Now, 500 people is ample for a court of law. But how many people never saw a miracle? How many people never saw Christ after his resurrection. All they heard was Jesus, what? He preached. Documented, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 4 through 8. Jesus explains that his generations needs no greater sign that he is from God than his own message. What's his message? His message is his preaching. Jesus even debates the validity of his own testimony with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Jesus' first example was that of the preaching of Jonah, verse 41 in this text, in response to the demand for a miracle. His second example is Solomon's wisdom in verse 42 was enough to prove Solomon's divine appointment and that a distant queen had came to Solomon as Gentile seekers had came to see him. Which Gentile seekers came to see Jesus? Matthew chapter 2, Magi, Magi. The context of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, as with the Ninevites and Jonah, is an Israelite witnessing 
to the nations. You realize that Jonah is one of the very few places that you find in the Old Testament where a Jewish person is sent to a non-Jewish person in the context of repentance, context of preaching. The proof has already been presented to the world by Christ's own preaching. The context is the preaching of the event, not the event itself. The context is the proclamation of the word of God. Think about that. The context is the proclamation of the word of God. Jesus, what did he do? What did he spend majority of his time doing? And he healed a lot of people. Thanks be to God for that. But he spent majority of his time preaching. I think about Mark chapter 3. I think it's like verse 38. His disciples come up to him and they said, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. And he says this, let us go to some of the other villages so I can preach. That's the reason why I have come. What would have happened if Jesus just died on the cross and told nobody? Or his disciples told nobody? Second, the proof has already been presented to the world. Third, history will judge history. Number three, history will judge history. Reading verses 41 through 42 again. Verse 41 of the NIV text. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Third, history will judge history. Jesus states that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn this generation. Church, keep in mind that the queen of Sheba lived during Solomon's time around 960 B.C. The men of Nineveh that Jonah preached to would have been around 770 B.C. These people who would judge and condemn this generation or that generation during Christ's time, they have been dead for many centuries. Not years, not decades. They've been dead for centuries. Christ is stating that the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba will stand up at the judgment and condemn them. Stand up in this context means they would come forward and appear to condemn them, to judge them. Church, don't confuse what Christ is saying in this context about judging and condemnation with what Christ says in the famous Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 2 about do not judge others or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge, you will be judged. In that Matthew 7, Jesus is addressing and he is referring to hypocrisy. This is totally different here. This is totally different. In this context of Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 through 42, judgment is referring to the final judgment at the end of time. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This context of judgment and condemnation is based upon the acceptance or rejection that Jesus is the Christ. Let me say that again. This context of judgment and condemnation is based upon acceptance or rejection that Jesus is the Christ. All roads may lead to Rome, 
But all roads do not lead to God the Father. Only through God the Son. Only through God the Son. Think about this. Christ stated, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul stated this. Do you know that the saints, pardon me, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Question mark. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Who are the saints? We are. The men of Nineveh who repented, the queen of Sheba, who heard the word of God through Solomon, will stand and judge this world. History will judge the world. History will judge history. And you will take part in that as a saint. You will judge this world. That's one of the jobs that you're going to have. History will judge history. Number four. The world's final condition will be worse than the first. Number four, the world's final condition will be worse than the first. Finishing this passage, or rather finishing by the theme, verses 43 through 45 of the NIV text states this. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest, and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, period. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Scary. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. In this context of verses 43 through 45, Christ is still addressing the group as this generation. He refers to them in verse 39, 41, 42, 45. He's talking about them as this generation. Who's in that group? Pharisees, Sadducees, the establishment, the people with the big temple, the people with the big church of the day, if you will. What's he doing? He's confronting the establishment, just like every major prophet did in the Old Testament. What was Jeremiah told to do? Confront them. He didn't say go pick a fight, but confront them. In fact, Jeremiah was told to address the shepherds. You know what the difference is between shepherd and a pastor in the New Testament, in the Greek word? Nothing. Shepherd and pastor is the same word, meaning the same thing. So when your pastor, Pastor Terry, stands up here and he's rightly dividing the word and he's telling you what's going on in this town, he's not trying to pick a fight. He's shepherding and he's pastoring and he is protecting you. Read 1 John chapter 4 about testing the spirits. Write that down. Go back to that later today. We're told to test the spirits. We're told to test everything to the word, aren't we? In the perfect word. If you're not 
have a Bible in front of you now. How do you know that I'm not lying to you? You say, well, the text is right up there. Okay. But how do you know I'm not lying to you? David Koresh, Jim Jones, all started out as great guys. You know? All started out as great guys. But a lot of people ended up hurt and dead. Jesus is referring to this same group of people. Now he is comparing this generation of the people to that of a man who has experienced an exorcism in verses 43 through 45. The condition of the man who experienced the exorcism was that the evil spirit was exorcised out of him, but the spirit of man is still unoccupied. In other words, the person or the house, metaphorical, has been swept clean, but yet still unoccupied. Verse 44. So the evil spirit comes back with seven other evil spirits more wicked than itself, and together they occupied the man, in verse 45. And if he was miserable before, what do you think he's like now? Yes. Christ referring to this generation and comparing them to the repossessed man. He is implying just as this man was exercised and swept clean, but yet unoccupied, so is this generation who heard the gospel and didn't apply it. How many people today hear a half gospel? How many people today talk on television that you can get to God anyway? Or what's worse now, you've got a whole group of clergy people that are on television now saying, you don't know God. God's beyond us. We cannot know his will. Oh boy, isn't that garbage? When you've got the perfect word here. Both the man and this generation, their final condition is worse than the first. Verse 45. Think about this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If we could put that up on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21 which state this. Now, this isn't me saying this. It's a scripture. If they had escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off than at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better off for them not to have known the way of righteousness. That's not me saying that. That's the Holy Spirit inspiring Peter to write that and to say that. Church, Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees and that generation that it is the Pharisees, not him, who are redemonizing their generation. For they leave the house empty in which God, the only true alternative to the devil, should reign. Fourth, the final condition will be worse than the first because it is still unoccupied and it is still asking for a sign and a proof. Show me a miracle. Show me a miracle. Just show me a miracle. Do this, do that. They want a miracle. How many more miracles were they going to have to have? Because what it really boiled down to, it wouldn't make any difference how many miracles he did, would it? No, no. It wouldn't make any difference. And yet we see our Lord and Savior confronting the establishment, confronting the temple, confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because if Jesus didn't tell them the truth, who would? 
if you do not share the truth with your neighbor, how's your neighbor ever going to hear? And there are some fantastic preachers in this town. And there are some fantastic ministries on television. No doubt. But there is so much garbage in the airways today. It is unbelievable. You know, you can take this perfect word of the Lord and you can really boil it down to four or five themes. You ready? Four or five themes, perfect word of the Lord. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. There's no other way. And that's a military chaplain telling you that. Number two, the Spirit will empower you to do ministry. Now, your ministry may be preaching. Your ministry may be teaching. Your ministry may be working as a car mechanic. And if you're fixing my car, hey, thanks be to God. You know? Book of Acts. Number three, renew your mind with Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be no longer conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And number four, what's the rest of the New Testament talking about? Changing and becoming Christ-like. But number five is a tough one. You know what number five boils down to? Surviving hypocrisy, or pardon me, surviving apostasy and heresy. Apostasy is this massive falling away and surviving the heresy. Grab your Bible. Keep reading every New Testament book. What was the war about? Telling people, keep fighting, keep fighting. Jude specifically addresses it in his book. New Testament writer after New Testament writer. What are you fighting? What are you contending with? Heresy. Heresy after heresy after heresy after heresy. What's a pastor's role? To shepherd. What's a pastor's job to do? To protect you and to tell you the truth. Think about this. Church, the world says to the Christian, prove to us that you're right and we're wrong. Prove to us that your way is the only way. Church, nail this down pat today. Stop playing games with the world. That's not our job to prove anything. It's not our job to prove anything. We're not on this planet to prove anything to anyone. We're here to testify and to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. Bear witness and testify and be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. We're here to testify, as the psalmist would say in Psalms 66, 16, which goes like this. For all you who fear God, let me tell you what he's done for me. Fear in that context means respect. For all you who respect God, let me tell you what he's done for me. I'm a walking testimony because of Jesus Christ. My senior English teacher said I would be dead or in the penitentiary by the time I was 20 years old. Thank you for the support. But Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, had another plan. You, if you're a Christian, you are a walking testimony. We're here to carry out the great commission of Mark chapter 16, verse 15. How does it go? Go into all the world and preach the good news. And you may be saying, but hey, Scott, I'm not called to be a preacher. Okay. But that still doesn't mean that you're not to be a walking testimony. You're not to be a witness. You're not to explain. You know how? You know the reason why I'm here today? 19 years of ministry? Because my neighbor 
kept inviting me to church. Year after year. I buried my mother at 15. I buried five friends of drugs and alcohol. One for every year after that. And I thought life was absolutely, positively hopeless. And you know what? My neighbor kept inviting me to church. I would be dead today, no doubt in my mind. But God had another plan. And yet our churches are imploding nationwide. And pick any denomination you want to look at. You know how many different churches I've spoken in? Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, disciples of Christ, Presbyterian. I've even spoken in a Baptist church. You know? And yet, look at the churches in this nation. Look at the buildings that used to run hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I spent the past 15 years of my life studying churches, what works, what doesn't work. And look at them just simply imploding. You can go into churches right now in this city that used to run hundreds of people, and now they run 30 or 40. You know how they pay the power bill? One word, daycare. Daycare. What went wrong? What happened? And yet our churches are imploding nationwide. And you can pick any denomination you want. That's irrelevant. Our churches are imploding and collapsing and they're drying up. Church, what went wrong? What's happened? And it started around June of 1996, the first wave of it. What happened was that our churches stopped preaching the Word of God. They stopped using the Bible, period. There's a pastor in this town right now who tells the people, come to his church, don't bring a Bible. And that's not because he has some high-dollar, really nice screen. But he tells people, don't bring a Bible because you might offend somebody. I'd be scared God would strike me dead. You might offend somebody. One of the greatest things somebody can ever do to you is tell you the truth. You know? What happened was our churches stopped preaching the Bible. They stopped preaching the Word of God. The churches spent all their time trying to duplicate somebody else's revival, trying to duplicate another church's culture, trying to teach somebody's book off the New York Times bestseller list, or trying to turn their church into a coffee house, trying to be so seeker-friendly, and they're so worried about offending somebody that they removed all hymns from the singing, and now they're removing the Bibles. There are churches in this county right now that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to literally add onto their church so they can have a coffee house within inside their church. Because a guy wrote a book here about five, ten years ago that said, you can build relationships through a cup of coffee. I don't doubt that. Man, I don't doubt that. But do you think that cup of coffee is going to keep them Sunday after Sunday? Do you think that cup of coffee is going to empower them? Do you think a cup of coffee is going to convict their spirit to repent? You know? May wake you up. But the quick fixes aren't working. Why? Because it's not... I'm going to let you... You people probably don't believe this, but caffeine is not empowered by the Holy Ghost. You know? And I'm not sitting here trying to beat up on the 
preachers in this town. But it's my job as a pastor, and my congregation is a thousand people that work on a B-2 bomber, to tell them the truth. I could talk, come here and tell stories. There's a pastor in this town that spends his whole sermon preaching out of chicken soup for the soul. Cute book. I've even met the author. He was at Whiteman Air Force Base a couple of months ago. Nice guy. But it's not scripture. Church, listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Also consider this. How many people have seen Billy Graham on TV? Or ever had the great opportunity to go to Billy Graham Revival? Awesome. What does he do? He has his mantra. You ever, ever, ever catch him on Larry King Live? I love to watch it. I love to watch him on there. Because what he does is this. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Isn't that amazing? Here's a man who has been so successful at reaching hundreds of thousands of people with the phrase, the Bible says, and then he follows it up with the scripture. Hmm. Church, listen to the word of God, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. My word goes out from my mouth, and it will not return empty. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus replied, let us go so I can preach. That's the reason why I've come. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the twelve, and he says to them, as you go, preach. For our church is to work again. They have to return to the preaching of the word. Matthew, or pardon me, Mark chapter 16, and to go into all the world and preach. What do you see Pastor Terry doing up here every Sunday? Preaching, pulling out the word. Pulling out the word. I don't think I've ever seen the man with a copy of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Pulling out the word. Preaching it. And what happens when he preaches it? It does not return void. Church of the world says to the Christian, prove to us that you're right and your way is the only way. Church, that's not in our job description. And it's not covered in other duties as assigned. You're never going to win your relatives at the family reunion by trying to prove something. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart when you quote the word. Church, we're not on this planet to prove anything to anyone. We're here to testify and to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And even if you're not here, and even if you're not going to be a preacher, irrelevant, because you're here to be a witness. You're here to go out and to be a witness. Christ stated in John chapter 14, verse 12, The believer who has faith in me will do even greater things than these. Christ is telling us that a believer who has faith in him will do greater things than these. Well, what did they see? Saw Lazarus raised from the dead. What is greater than seeing a dead man come back to life? I'll tell you what's greater. 
Church, what is greater than Lazarus being raised from the dead? It's the spiritual dead being reborn and obtaining eternal life. Once again, what's greater than seeing a dead man come back to life? It's seeing your dead relative or seeing a dead person like me spiritually dead and being reborn to live forever with our Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to look around the room. Look around the room. Take a moment. Look around the room. And as our ushers come forward or our altar workers come forward and stand up here beside me, I want you to know something. If you're not a believer and you're here today, look around the room. These people around you are walking testimonies. They're walking testimonies of what God has done in their lives. History here. You are history. And that's what we do. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to look around the room. History testifies and it witnessed to the world that Jesus is the Christ. Look around the room and observe the people who are God's walking testimonies. How is it said? Psalm 66, 16. For all you who fear God, let me tell you what he's done for us. Join us today and become a witness. Become a testimony Get some peace in your life. And it's not about proving anything to anyone. First, the world says, prove to us. Prove to us that you're right. Brother and sister and Lord, the proof has already been presented. And how many people say it? They turn around and say it. If God is real, he's got to tell me so. He has to make himself real to me. If God is real, I want him to tell me so. Where is your God? You people talk about this all the time. Where is he at? Hebrews chapter 1. Think about this passage. Let's throw that up on the screen. Look at that. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son. People ask where God's at? Right there. God sent his son and they called his name Jesus. What did he do? He came and made the will of God known. So for all the people who are saying, God, where are you at? Make yourself real. He has. That's the proof right there. The proof is in the preaching and sharing of the word. Let's pray. Bind off the Lord God and Savior, for thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Lord, I praise you for your perfect word, and I praise you that you would send your Son Jesus to die for a sinner, such as myself. Lord, for you didn't call us to prove anything to anyone, and Lord, how we've made it so much harder than it all has to be. Lord, I ask that you be with us this day, and you would use your great Holy Spirit to quicken our heart by the perfect word that we've heard. And that we would pray for those ministries around us and on TV that are so far from your word and have become false teachers just as Jude spoke about. Just as Jeremiah confronted the false shepherds, the false teachers, the false prophets. That we would pray for them and for their conviction and they would come back to teaching your perfect word. Lord, if there's a person here today that does not know you, that they would come forward at the end of the service and become part of this testimony. Lord, I ask you to be with Pastor Terry and Pastor Diane today. Bless them with the Sabbath. Bless them with rest. 
and recharge them to come back and continue to do what they've always done as shepherd and teach us and share us the perfect word. And, Father God, we give you the praise. In the resurrected name of Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you. Dismissed.